Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm the lead pastor here at Resonate Christian Church. And I wanted to welcome each one of you this morning, wherever you are. Maybe you are sitting at home and watching this right now, or you'll catch this later in the day, or you are just able to catch snippets here and there. Maybe you're working today. Whatever your situation in life is this morning or throughout the day, we love you, we care about you, and we want to know about you. And so if you want to send in a prayer request or a thought or just uh, reach out to us, you're more than welcome to do that. If you want to connect with our Facebook or Instagram, send us a direct message or reach out to one of our emails that are listed on our website, fill out the card, the connection card that is at the, on the front page of our website. Get connected with us and let us know how you're doing because we want to know how to pray for you. We have fully moved into our summer schedule, and so even though it feels like maybe we have been in the midst of a summer-type schedule for a long time, where our kids haven't been in school in place, and so um, we have been in this weird time, uh, but now we are moved into a true summer schedule where our community groups are meeting let's say once a month or an irregular basis. Lots of them are scheduling the, the community groups out on our patio for a lunch or, or excuse me, a, a dinner or um, a barbecue out on our patio. And so you're welcome to schedule that with us. Get a hold of Pastor Jake to do that schedule. Also, if you want to attend our church gathering at 10 o'clock live uh, here in the room, go ahead and reach out to Pastor Becky and she can get you scheduled because we are allowed to have 25 people in the room. That includes our staff and those volunteers that are helping with uh, broadcasting and sound and such. And so those 25 really were only bringing in about 20 Two, to allow some breathing room in case somebody shows up unscheduled. We never want to turn somebody away um, at the doors. And so we allow a little bit of breathing room and schedule everybody um, that wants to come. And so reach out to Pastor Becky for that if you want to come live. Um, we are continuing our coffee time and also our kids programming at 9.30. And if you are interested in connecting in for that kids program that's live at 9.30, we want you to reach out to Bethany Flug, and her email is listed on our website as well. And so reach out to her and get your kids connected in a safe way in a secure Zoom chat room where they do their programming. All right, I want to start out with, of course, the mission statement of our church. We are a community that loves like Jesus, and we know that loving like Jesus uh, takes growth and change and transformation and renewal of our lives, and that can be strengthened and expressed better. That love can be strengthened and expressed better when we engage in some core values that we have as a community. Daily devotion, prayer, freedom from strongholds, serving the community, sacrificial generosity, sharing and knowing our stories, and celebration. When we engage in those core values, we know that our love inside grows deeper and, and more, and we are able to love others even greater. We are in the midst of just a season of change and unknowing and just walking this journey together. And a lot of times we feel like, is Christ with us? Is Christ here? Is God 
present. And so I've been lighting this candle each week, and this candle represents the light of Christ in our lives and for us and around us, even in the midst of darkness, <clears throat> the light of Christ shines. Even in the midst that maybe we don't feel or experience God, maybe you're in a dark time right now, wherever you are at, whatever your emotions, whatever your emotions you're having, you might feel or experience that God is just not there. And this is our reminder that even though we feel like God is not there, the truth is he is there. The last couple of sermons, or last three sermons or so, I've been talking about race reconciliation. It's a very important topic because reconciliation, we are the ministers of reconciliation. And so race reconciliation is a large part of that, where we look at um, how we are treating people of different race. And in the last several weeks, of course, the world's attention has been brought to how are we treating the black community. So we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to listen to people's voices, authoritative voices, especially lifting up, elevating, and listening to black voices that are out there speaking to race reconciliation. And as a white male living in the United States of America, I need to grow and learn and look at my lack of self-awareness and also the blind spots in my life of where I struggle with racism. And so the idea of race reconciliation and engaging in this topic because it has not been engaged enough, we have not spent enough time, just let's say as a church, we haven't spent enough time as a church discussing it and digging out the conversation and exploring what race reconciliation can look like for us. When we start talking about it, of course, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be the struggle of the unknown, where <clears throat> we're experiencing feelings and thoughts and shame and <clears throat> looking at our own struggle of bias and trying to figure out what our struggle of bias is. And it's hard to sort out so many conversations all at once. Maybe you listen to a news channel where you get a news cycle and this news cycle is saying and speaking a certain thing and another is speaking and saying another thing and your friend is saying and speaking another thing. And so we have like all of these conversations hitting us, whether it be, you know, on a screen or um, to something that you're reading or maybe a book that you picked up or an article that you picked up or maybe just a personal friend speaking into your life or about the subject. There's a lot of conversation that is happening right now around the idea and the movement towards race reconciliation. And so there's, it's difficult to figure out the emotions in all of it and the change, the direction of the change that we need to, to take. So I would say that we are in a season of what I'll call communal repentance. The Bible is very clear that there's individual repentance and then there's communal repentance where not only <clears throat> did, a, did a whole family turn their ways or a group of people, turn, the, the entire tribe or the entire nation turned their ways when 
let's say a prophet came and spoke the truth over the nation and then the nation would uh, go through a lot of turmoil and trauma and eventually the nation would turn. So there's, there's the, the word in, in the Bible that speaks about communal repentance. So we know individual repentance. We've talked a lot about individual repentance. We don't necessarily talk about communal repentance. Communal repentance or <clears throat> communal sin basically is you might not feel like you are directly involved or directly attacking or directly sinning, yet our complacency, our ignorance, or our apathy, or, or just sitting on our hands and not saying anything, it, it enables sin to continue. It enables wrongdoing to continue when we just sit on our hands and we don't do anything about what we are witnessing. We actually become a part of the problem, and sometimes we move into becoming such a part of the problem that we begin to ignore the problem or actually promote the problem ourselves. And so we need at some point to engage in communal repentance. And that's what we are, I think, experiencing today. Everybody that is that is has been around for a while has grown in biases and grown in preferences and and, and grown in in maybe not hanging out or, or hanging out with people of, of likeness and, and all this. We, I think, all do that to a point uh, because we are human and we are fallen people and we don't necessarily accept all people because we struggle with that acceptance of all people. They might be a threat to our value system that we grew up with or our ideal or our certain way that we've always thought that the person becomes a threat or their ways become a threat. Rather, the problem today with today's <coughs> race racism is that it is known that White people have created a system, like we talked about last week, created a system that has treated the black community a certain way. And, and definitely white privilege has created this like layer upon layer upon layer of a system that our black uh, friends, brothers and sisters cannot uh, achieve the same status goal or the same income or the same position as another that is of that is white um, that is a system problem and so that's the that is the challenge that we see and sometimes and a lot of times that can turn into brutality violent acts it can turn to some very uh, disheartening, uh, events and actions and and stuff against people and that's what we've that's what we've seen and that's why this is so so disheartening. So we need to engage in communal repentance. We need to engage in this idea that we all need to change. We all need to move towards 
something different. We all need to move. The white community needs to move towards something different and start advocating and changing and transforming and renewing our minds and listening and learning uh, about how to and what changes to, to make. So I'm going to use Psalm 32. <clears throat> That's the psalm that we're going to go over this morning. It's one of the seven penitential psalms that, that uh, is written in the Bible. It talks about our shortcomings. I love using this psalm. I've used it before in church. I've preached on it before about uh, just coming to repentance and having this expressive sorrow for sin. And so today that's our focus. We're going to just take an honest look at this psalm. To be honest, this is this. I'm going to focus on sin. I'm going to focus on wrongdoing. Uh, I'm going to use, you know, illustrations and points about race, yet I'm going to take just a, a one-week uh, direct break from the idea of race reconciliation because I need to learn more. I need to read more. I need to think more and listen more to, to people of color when it comes to race reconciliation. So I'm just kind of in this learning mode uh, this week and next about uh, race and racism and race reconciliation. So Psalm 32 talks about sin and the repentance and the expressive repentance of sin. We need to remember that we're all fallen short of God's glory. We all have fallen short. We all have sinned. We all continue to fall short of God's glory. We are not perfect people, yet <clears throat> that's not an excuse. The Bible does say that should we go on sinning so grace may abound. No, we shouldn't just go on sinning. We need to find a sense and posture of repentance so that we are more in alignment with, with God and his ways. So racism is a sin. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Racism is sin. When you downplay or think of yourself higher than another race, so white people thinking white supremacy is, is sin. And I want to use the word sin seriously Sin is one of those words that creates emotion in us because I think the church has abused the word um, sin or the topic of sin and has put lots of people under should contracts and you know sinners in the hands of an angry God type of type of sermon. But yet it it definitely it it definitely is important to talk about and especially when it comes to this idea of race reconciliation. To identify racism as sin is important, that we identify it as sin. So when we are engaged downplaying another person because of their race, white supremacy, we are engaged in sin. And I want to take this, this, uh, this topic seriously because I want us to have a right relationship with God. I want to understand our communal sin. I want to understand my personal sin. I want to understand it so that I can help motivate people, learn, grow, and change myself, but also motivate a community into a different way, way of life. I do also want to make sure that I emphasize grace when it comes to sin. We have sinned 
yet grace, our doctrine of grace, needs to be shining above our doctrine of sin. It doesn't mean that we need to take advantage of that gift or just, hey, I get grace, I get a pass. That's not, that's not the attitude or posture we need to have. Yet our doctrine of grace needs to shine. It needs to be more important and, and spoken louder than our doctrine of sin. Yet you cannot, you cannot talk about grace necessarily without talking about sin. And so, so that's what we're going to do today. Psalm 32, uh, 1 through 8. And I'm just going to start out just by reading the scripture. The one whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered over, is truly happy. The one the Lord doesn't consider guilty, in whose spirit there is no dishonesty, that one is truly happy. When I keep quiet, my bones wore out. I was groaning all day, every night, every day. Because your hand was heavy upon me, my energy was zapped as if in the summer drought. So I admit my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. I'll confess my sins to the Lord is what I said. Then you remove the guilt of my sin. I'm going to stop there at verse 5. We'll cover 6, 7, and 8 a little bit later. So there's three things I think that this psalmist talks about when it comes to the reality of sin. First is sin is poison, yet there is a treatment and an antidote to sin. And so first, the poisonous reality of sin um, is shown in a couple of Hebrew words that I want to give you this morning. The, the first Hebrew word is peshah. And this is the word that's first translated, you'll see in, well, in our translation, the one whose wrongdoing is forgiven. That word wrongdoing is the word peshah. And it means rebellious self-assertion. That's what that means. It's a rebellion. It's the self-assertion of I'm right, you're wrong type of thing. So one of the things that I want to bring to your attention is that sin equals rebellion. That sin is a self-assertion. So Augustine, in his book on confessions, writes about a story when he was 16, he broke into a pear orchard and stole pears and afterwards asked the question, why did I break in and steal the pears, right? He wasn't hungry and he didn't like pears. And so his conclusion was that it was forbidden and that since it was a restricted area, he saw that there was a core issue with himself. And that core issue was the self-declaration or the self-assertion that no one is going to tell me how to live. No one is going to tell me how to live. So that hatred of the restriction or our desire to break the restriction actually makes our life miserable. Uh, when somebody tells us, when somebody tells us that that we are wrong when we believe that we are right, that self-assertion, that that push, that's a fight. That's that's like a you're not gonna tell me 
what to do. And so it, it makes, when, when people do this, or when I do this, when I assert myself in such a way, it makes the world a miserable place place to live. There's, a, there's an author out that says, sin is not, his name, Francis Spufford is his name, sin is not the tendency to lurch or stumble by accident. Like you're just walking through life and I made a mistake. Sin is the active tendency to break stuff. Promises, relationships, and our own well-being. So our, our self-assertion um, when we are limited in our desires or we're limited in our being, our self-assertion, we want to break, uh, break the rules, basically. And so promises are in the way, relationships are in the way, covenants in the way, my own, even your well-being, my well-being is in the way. And so, so I don't care about my body, so I'm going to break my health. That's, that's sin against my body. I don't care about your body, so I'm going to break yours too. That's sin against your body. I don't like restrictions that relationships put on my life, so I will break that. I don't like the fact that I follow, I have to follow through with promises because that takes too much work. I'm not going to fulfill and I'm going to break that one too. So that's the pasha. That's the, that's the self-assertion. Um, there's another Hebrew word for sin, and this is where uh, in the psalmist in 32, the one whose wrongdoing is forgiven whose sin is covered over, so whose sin, so this actual word that's translated sin, is the word hata, which means to veer off the path or to get off the path. And the, the path is very clear. Promises are made. Relationships are to be protected. Love is to be instilled. Uh, we are to take care of our temple. We're to take care of the earth, things like that. When you get off the path and you get in the weeds, you fall off the cliff. And so... So getting off the path, a hata, means that you are, you are veering off of a direction. You're veering off to a, a direction. Now, I think that, I think that this, this idea is more subtle than the first idea of wrongdoing. Now, I'm not saying that we are, you know, completely you know, completely, uh, you know, we get a pass on our sin because we didn't know we were veering off the path. The veering off the path and with sin and the hata means that we've been maybe coaxed or we've been told some things that we follow. We've been a part of an idea. We've been a part of a system or we've been a part of a group or group think or whatever it is that pulls us off of the path. And so, so the hata actually is maybe the lie that perpetuates another lie that perpetuates another lie that perpetuates another lie, and that lie just compounds upon compounds upon compounds. And so it's not the lie necessarily that breaks us. It's the energy and the jockeying and the trying to figure out how to cover for my original lie, like the constant stress of always being guarded. You have to keep the, that truth or that version of the truth intact for that, for that person. And so when we, when we lie, let's just choose that as the sin, when we lie, we actually turn that person into an object. It's called objectification. 
So when we objectify somebody by lying to somebody because they don't deserve the truth or they don't, uh, they don't need the truth or I'm trying to protect myself and not give the truest, best version of myself to another, we begin to dehumanize people. Uh, you're telling people what they want to hear about you. You're coddling them or you're, you're like like running plays, you know, to protect their emotions because you don't want to necessarily hurt their feelings or whatever in the moment. So you, so we lie, yet down the road when they find out the truth, I, I think that the lack of trust that, that was built um, in that original lie or the perpetuation of guarding that truth, if you are honest, that is a greater hurt than the original lie. And so I would say that relationships are damaged over a long period of time because of the hata. We get off the path, we start treating people a certain way. It might be one subtle thing after the other. That might be one great thing and then a subtle, you know, handful of subtle things. And so the poisonous reality of either one, the pshar, the hata, the poisonous reality of either one is it breaks down trust, it breaks down relationships, and it breaks down ourselves. It breaks down our psyche. We are damaged because of, we damage ourselves because of the sin that we engage in. We are one of the few cultures uh, in life, uh, in history, that does not have a consensus on what is right and wrong. So here in our Western culture, we struggle with right and wrong. So we have a very subjective type view of what is what is right and wrong. Other cultures in 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 more of a communal type living situation, there are clear, there are clear ideas and consensus on what is right and wrong. It might not be right for me, and it might not be wrong for, for me or whatever, but there is a consensus of what is right and wrong. And so, so this, this is, the, the idea of right and wrong is within our core, within our values, it's within ourselves, it's within our own maturity, within our own growth, and when we break and we pasha, we enter into the wrongdoing, we break stuff. And, and the number one thing is that we break our souls. We break, we break our hearts. And we also break God's heart. We also break God's heart when we enter into the pasha and we damage our relationship with others and with God over time with Hata. So there's a problem though with our treatment of sin. And we usually uh, point somebody else's sin out to them and we put people under should contracts. Well, you should do this and you should do that. And, and eventually we attach people's salvation to their mistakes, wrongdoing, and to their to their sin in order to get them to do usually what I want them to do. And so the church universal is guilty of that, that we focus on 
other people's sins or the hot spot sins, you know, that are out there. We focus on those so much and put the world basically under a should contract that we we isolate people, we separate relationship, and we actually um, have been guilty of excommunicating people from from the church. I have stories personally that I feel just just completely my word, you know, the things that I've engaged in as a pastor and been a part of when it came to, you know, kicking somebody out of the church is horrific. And I feel um, a lot of shame uh, in that. Uh, it was an era of the church that I was, I was a part of. And so we treat people a certain way with, with sin. In verse 5, it says this, So I admit my sin to you, I didn't conceal my guilt. I'll confess my sins to the Lord is what I said. Then you will remove the guilt of my sin. So there is an idea within this verse 5 called confession. And, and we must first realize what the psalmist is, is telling us here is that we need to acknowledge. He says, I admitted my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. I'll confess my sins to the Lord is what I said. And then you remove the guilt of my sin. We need to realize that this idea of admission or just transparency or confession Number one, that shows a lot of maturity in another individual if they can confess their wrongdoings. I know people that feel like they have to be right so much that they're not willing to first be transparent and say, I struggle with this issue. I find that completely weak in another person. In myself, I find that completely weak. When I'm not willing to admit my wrongdoing and just sit before a person and feel confident that I'm a child of God, that I am you know, created in his image, Yet because of the, the fallen world and the, and the world that we live in in general, and, and I can't just admit this fact that I struggle with, let's say, the, the topic we've been on, race reconciliation. I, I can't sit before somebody and say, I struggle with preference and bias, and it comes out of me, and my racism comes out of me. I've grown up in this system. I've grown up in certain family paradigms, and and certain eras of time that have trained my brain to, to act a certain way, even with like not even knowing and being ignorant. Now, have I tried to train my brain in a different direction? Yes, but even though I've tried to train my brain into a different direction of how to be and to treat other people, it emerges out of me. It, 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 it is there. And so to say... Fully, I struggle. I struggle with all kinds of things when it comes to this idea of race reconciliation. I struggle with my own racism and, and the things that I say and the and the like the actions that I that I take. I struggle. Um, I've taken one of those race sensitivity uh, tests. When I was, um, when Amanda and I went for our second adoption, we took a lot of race sensitivity training and they tested us, you know, in our preferences and our biases. And it was shocking to both of us and very, like, very depressing, I would say, that we just walked out of that 
test and we were just like, wow, we, we have some things to work on. And so I think that confession and admission and just transparency <clears throat> needs to be the standard of a Christian. It needs to be a standard of a mature person, that we need to grow in our maturity, that we need to acknowledge that we are capable of being a certain way. We are capable, and we don't need to walk around in a bunch of self-pity and and. Or, or that self-pity sometimes generates the, the wall. No, I'm not that way. And we throw up walls against other, other people. And so it's not self-pity and, and wallowing in, a, in the sewage of shame. And it's not throwing up walls uh, to the possible, the possible indictment that we are a certain, certain way. When it comes to this idea of guilt and the treatment of sin, a lot of us have grown up or been around a lot of false shame, just to take a, just to take a, a side trail here, where we have engaged in or been the recipient of the transference of guilt, or maybe it wasn't our problem, it was another person's problem, but they made it out to be our problem, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of depression that can come out of falsified shame and, and false guilt. I think that families in general struggle uh, in false guilt and shame. And even myself, you know, looking at my daughters and shaming them into doing things, shaming them into behaving a certain way. Uh, we do that. It happens uh, in just parenting. It happens in discipline where we shame our, our kids uh, in certain ways in order to, you know, like change the behavior. Sometimes we don't realize we are doing it. Um, most of the time, I would say, we realize that we don't realize that we are, we are doing it. Um, but the idea of family false guilt is very, very real. And I remember being, you know, a young man, and if I wasn't doing a certain thing or being a certain way, it wasn't like not being that way or not doing that thing was sinful. It was just something else that I wanted to do. So like, like it was just something else that I wanted to engage in or, you know, even a degree, like a, like a college degree that I wanted to get. Uh, I felt a lot of shame and guilt and, and a lot of emotion because of what was imposed on me as I was trying to become an adult. So like, you know, like that's, a, that's the idea of what are you not taking over the family business? What's wrong with you? <clears throat> or doing the same thing that our parents did for a living or raising our kids the same way a lot of people, a lot of families speak into their children's parenting techniques. And so we have this like idea, the fear of disappointment. And that idea, the fear of disappointment is a falsified sin. It's a false sin. It's a false shame. It's a false Guilt, yet <clears throat> I have seen people just literally spin themselves right into a suicidal moment because of that detrimental emotion of the fear of disappointing a parental figure in their, in their life. So what do we need to do with our behavior that is, that is real and hatap shah, it's the, it's the wrongdoing, it's the sin. What do we need to do with that? behavior, we don't need to conceal it. We need to be transparent with it. We need to confess it. 
<laughs> there's a mature way to do that, and then there's an immature way to do that. And I think that the immature way to do that is to say, I'm sorry for me. Let's just, let's just kind of just metaphorically or encapsulate that into the quotes. I'm sorry for me. That is a poor apology. That's like, that's like the apology that's not an apology. Number one, when somebody says that, I say usually back, well, I'm not sorry for you. And that's just kind of like the, the smoke screen sometimes that we put up because we enter into these difficult conversations of apology, confession, and, and forgiveness. We enter into them with a lot of self-shame and self-flagellation. It's like we're beating ourselves with a whip um, ourselves on the back because we feel so guilty and so shameful about what we are and, and who we are and all these things that we end up just basically giving an apology that's not necessarily a, a good, true, mature apology. I'm sorry for me. No, the Bible says I confess my sins. I confess the wrongdoing due to the Lord or to others. And when I confess my wrongdoing, that means that I name it. I name it. It's kind of like naming the hurt. We name the sin as well. I did this to you, and I know that this hurt your feelings, damaged our relationship, or separated us and built a lack of trust between us. I know that, and for that I am truly sorry. That kind of uh, declaration is not a self-flagellating declaration of, and it sounds much different than, I'm sorry for me, or I'm sorry for all the things that I've been to you, or I'm sorry for everything that I've ever done. Those things, you just get wrapped up into the self-pity and the self-hate. self So what's the antidote? I see uh, the psalmist uh, continuing on to verse 7 and 8, but I'm going to back up to verse 5 to start. Verse 5 uh, well, in actually, actually in Romans chapter 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32, and he says, But faith is credited as righteousness to those who don't work, because they have faith in God who makes the ungodly righteous. In the same way, David also pronounces a blessing to the person whom God credits righteousness apart from his actions. And if I look up uh, Romans, which I'm just going to look this up on my... on my uh, internet here. In chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, it says, Happy are those whose actions outside the law are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy are those whose sins aren't counted against them by the Lord. That's what Romans 4, how that quotes Psalm 32. So we need to turn our sin and motivate ourselves towards the Lord, confessing our sins towards the Lord and to other people, being specific and naming it, asking for the forgiveness and entering into a posture of forgiveness. Yet then, what is the next step? I think the next step is to act in that forgiveness, is to be motivated to act through that forgiveness. 
and to behave in a way like we are forgiven. That does not mean revert back to what you know and continue to behave the same way. No, that means I am forgiven, therefore I am given a chance. I'm given a new life. I'm given a new new moment in my life. And so therefore, I will act in alignment to God. So ultimately, exposure creates change. Exposure creates, like our confession, exposure creates the environment or the, or the posture that we are willing to grow and to, to change. It's only then that we can rebuild <coughs> promises, rebuild relationships, and rebuild ourselves and even rebuild our society. So when it comes to this idea of race reconciliation, And communal confession, communal repentance, that's where we need to be. Being fully transparent, fully vulnerable, fully confessional with our approach to how we have treated other people. So let's take communion today in light of that. That Jesus gave us ultimately this new moment, this new life. And I want to take communion in, <clears throat> with that in mind. He says, this is my body and this is my blood. He says, given to you, do this in remembrance of me. He says, live life now in remembrance of Jesus. Let's take communion together. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this moment that we got to look at just the confession of sin and the antidote of sin. Lord, knowing that you have offered the chance and the idea of grace and forgiveness, Lord, help us to repent and change, and that be our posture. Lord, that we always want to grow and learn and listen and hear, Lord, and walk our lives more into an alignment of who you've created us to be. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.